The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. I don't know if people have um, any comments about uh, practice tonight or about how to practice with these uh, these events that happen. I'm not sure how many people have heard the news, but 35W collapsed over the river at about six o'clock. So, uh, pretty serious uh, tragedy. It was, of course, packed with people. Um, I don't think there are any reports of injuries at this point. At least not that I heard at seven before the set. But the nice, if there's anything nice about a terrible thing like this, is it can kind of shake us a little bit. Uh, you know how it is, I'm sure. We can move through life and s seemingly important things are ac actually seen for what they are, which are relatively insignificant. You know, all the things that we tend to be dramatic about in our lives. And then something like this happens something unpredictable like this and it just shifts our awareness and we can be grateful for that and we want to be careful because when that shift happens we can shift right over into some kind of other drama like we can make the tragedy a drama but what we really want is that uh, I think it will happen for all of us but we might overlook it. It's a kind of soberness that arises when there's a tragedy or a really big event that surprises us. Because that soberness, I think, comes from a kind of humility. Because we think, you know, if we're just confident enough, we'll get our act together, we'll get our life together, things will work. And then we, something like this happens, and we realize, um, doesn't matter how confident I am, things happen. And this is always the way it is, but we can forget it. And the other um, part we can be grateful for is uh, sometimes when something like this happens and we're somewhat removed, you know, we're not a, an emergency response person, it can, we can feel confused about what to do. And it seems, you know, we can feel helpless. And then the other thing we can be grateful for is that we have something to do. We can practice fearlessness, practice sensitivity, so not, as I mentioned earlier, not getting dramatic, getting all caught up in the story, but just staying really grounded in the sensitivity of the heart, like really being willing to feel what we feel, um, even if it's nothing, but just to be willing to stay sensitive to what's going on and to practice being real with it. And and actually to let it sober us up. And this is the great thing about awareness or mindfulness. It's sobering. 
it's the opposite of drama. Because if we keep turning to things as they are, there's no room for that mind to proliferate and to kind of uh, whip something up. We ended last week um, talking about relationships without attachment. The chapter in Ajahn Sumedho's book was the human family, and I think chapter 16. And at the end of that chapter, somebody asks him about, well, how, how can you be in relationship without attachment? And this is true in terms of parents with kids, but it's also true with us being in this community. We're in relationship with this community, and we're attached to how things go. We get attached. We have ideas. It shouldn't be this way or it should be that way. So in a way, this is the ultimate gift we give to each other, is to be willing to be in relationship, to be connected without the fear and attachment, without the aversion and, and attachment. So this is our opportunity to practice that. So before I go on to the talk that I prepared tonight, I just thought I'd see if people have any comments, any questions about how to hold or practice with big events like this. Anything come to mind? Greg? experiences that are traumatic or horrifying or really scary. The um, first thing I recall happening is I forget all my routines, I forget all the steps you take. You know? So it's like, well, when can I calm down? I really got to calm down. How am I going to hold this? What, what are the right things to say? And it's like everything we're talking about just sort of gets obliterated by the impact of this event. And just takes time before the mind. What I found is when I've gone through this is that it just takes time before I can actually open to mm -hmm. the event or open to what I perceived at that event. And it just meanwhile I'm going through all this stuff and I can hardly stand it. And it just but it, it does happen, but it just takes time. And that's hard. Yeah. And you know, in those events where we have a little distance, like maybe this one for us, um, then for those people who are, you know, freaking out or losing it because of their proximity or for whatever reason, we can also hold them too. You know, we can be, we can really be sensitive that this is really not just difficult for the immediate people, but it can be difficult for people all over the country watching it on the news. And we can really let, let our heart be sensitive to that and know that if just the right thing happened to us, we'd also lose it. 
I know I told some people, um, maybe in this group, about an event that happened a long time ago, soon after Wynn and I moved in. In the middle of the night, someone banged really loud on the door. And uh, it ended up just being the police. Someone had broken into one of our cars, and somehow the police caught the guy. They just happened to be around at the time. But my mind, it was like one of those perfect events where, because I don't see this too much, where I actually lose it. Um, but I really lost it in that, you know, probably less than 60 seconds. And, you know, I was asleep. It was the middle of the night. And uh, I remember very clearly my mind searching desperately uh, in a hyperactive way for some kind of explanation for why someone would be pounding on my door at whatever it was, 3 in the morning, 2 in the morning. And my mind really is so used to having an explanation. And so it ran so fast for that explanation, it couldn't, it couldn't conceive of anything. And, uh, and I just saw my whole sort of mind fall apart. I mean, it's like, I, I, it's just seeing panic. <laughs> and the fact that that doesn't happen too much for me made it even more dramatic. <laughs> and then, of course, I didn't want to panic. And so that was also part of the, the fuel. It's like not wanting to panic, you know. <laughs> you can yell at me and say, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> I was just anticipating your, your, your confusion. <laughs> Someday you'll be grateful. <laughs> I mean, it's just great to know that we can all lose it. Um, it's just a matter of the particular events that will trigger it and have a lot of patience when we're around other people who are losing it. Because I know that's hard for me. You know, it's, it's easy for me to judge people who seem to be sort of emotionally out of control. And, uh, yeah, and, and I think what we have to remember, you know, we can be grateful for the times like that for me, that particular relatively insignificant time, but just to see, oh, yeah, you know, I can lose it. That was a silly event, and I lost it. Anybody else have any comments? Also, people might want to share a little bit about um, how you practice tonight or ways you practiced in the past where you've been able to find that balance between the equanimity and the sensitivity that really makes up compassion. I mean, that's what compassion is. It's both being connected with the suffering but not crushed by it or weighed down by it, but still sensitive to it. It almost sounds like a paradox. So any thoughts about that from your experience tonight or in the past?
Yeah, that's an ancient instruction, basically. I mean, not just the meditation, but in particular, to take the mind, to take the heart, and to put it someplace where there's not a lot of human drama, like a wheat field, like you described. And of course, you know, if we have the opportunity, we can do that, but we don't always have that opportunity. But it's the we can understand the sort of underlying premise that that uh, nature in the most you know using that word in the most general sense nature knows how to hold knows how to relate to all things to life and death and so we just need to come into alignment with that we have to you know whatever works for us we need to and whatever opportunity we might have come into alignment with that and the opposite would be to be surrounded by, to put ourselves into a lot of human confusion, a lot of human drama. That would probably be not so useful for somebody with a loss like you described. I think one of the reasons that uh, I, I missed the whole 9-11 thing. I was on retreat in Asia, and so I didn't see any of the media at all. But I, I'm, I imagine, and when I came back, I felt like I was in a different country. I came back in the middle of December, and I really felt like I was in a different world. And I have a sense that that there was so much drama, I can only imagine, and it's totally understandable to me. I'm not judging the fact that there was a lot of drama. But there was so much drama, and probably pretty hard to get a lot of space from it, that we, we all, you know, or almost everybody, um, got affected by that exposure to that much human drama for that extended period of time, that it, it could actually kind of shift who we are as a, as a people, as a culture. And it probably would have been really different if um, not only did they cancel the flights for the week or so after that, but they just limited newscasts. You know, it's like a couple hours a day or, or whatever and that the news people were really trained to be thoughtful and to just state the facts as they are, you know. And then they had people on TV and radio kind of helping us just sort of look, to kind of get, get instructions to look at what we're feeling or to, to use our good friends to talk about what we're feeling and to sort of turn the attention back on the feeling oh, this is what's going on here. I'm hearing this, and then this is going on here. 
and like you talked about, you know, being able to say our goodbyes, basically being able to learn how to be with the way it is, the fact that my father's died, or the fact that, you know, a lot of people have been harmed and probably killed. Fernando, did you have a thought? Yes. Yeah, that's called Dhamma. <laughs> it's insight into Dhamma. It's like uh, this is the this is the one thing we can be grateful for when life changes quickly, like the circumstances shift, like a tragedy like this, is that uh, the uh, the conceptual reality we live with gets broken a little bit, and we can have the experience. It doesn't make sense conceptually, but we can have an experience of the pervasive okayness of the way things are, even in the midst of a tragedy. I'm sure some of you might have this experience like if you're at the hospital with a loved one. And obviously it's not a good situation, but it can, it can shatter our sort of mind the kind of conceptual the concepts we use to hold our reality together it can sort of make it so they don't really work so well and we can feel a kind of peace and wholeness in very surprising places and we should trust it like mostly we don't notice it because it doesn't make sense so the mind basically doesn't look at it like don't look at that <laughs> that doesn't make sense so because this is a tragedy, I should be crying or I should be whatever. Um, and so that's, we, we tend to ignore anything that doesn't fit what we think should be going on for us. So it's nice to have done enough practice to first recognize that that's present and two, to, to be curious about it, you know, to be looking at it and then eventually to deeply trust it that actually we can take refuge in it. And it, we end up being more responsive, you know, in terms of what we do, how we respond to the situation. Anything else people have? From my own life experiences, I've been more directed to immediate and longer term reactions than what happens when there's the crisis of a moment, and because we found out that all our family was safe, I didn't react as strongly in a personal way to the bridge collapsing. But I thought right away of 9-11 as longer-term reactions to larger events that have ripple effects and affect us all. And what I was thinking is when there's an immediate crisis, I tend to go calm rather than panic. And it's because I've never been inside of one directly where 
been fortunate in that sense. The most immediate was when I was running around the Lake of the Isles in 1980 in spring when the weather was changing and it started to snow and ice was covered up and I took a wrong step and slid and snapped my ankle. That was the most immediate and I knew before I hit the ground that it was broken. I was completely calm. I didn't even have a sense of pain. And then somebody had a Buick station wagon and took me to the hospital. And only when they rolled me to the hospital did I start feeling pain and start thinking of all the implications of what had happened. So that was very physiological. It was something to do with the endorphins kicking in. It was a real physical experience when I realized my mind was calm and I hadn't reacted in any way to the pain of breaking my ankle. The social example in my life was when I got a call from Italy about something that had happened with my son and I had to get him the next plane to Italy. And I went calm for that too, not knowing all the circumstances. But in both cases, over the next days and weeks and months, there were major changes in my mind. So what I think of now in a case like this is how do I react not only to a crisis that's going to have ripple effects, but things that aren't crises, like things start to go bad in a job or a relationship. And these may have been both circumstances in which you just feel great joy and promise and, and hope, and it starts to get dashed. And so what I think of it, like, and this is probably what I'm seeking when I'm doing meditation, is not to get too excited about things that seem to be wonderful, but not to get too down or overreact when things seem like they're not so good. Mm -hmm. I think it has to do with what's throughout our society when we talk about bipolar situations. I think people, maybe because of the biochemical makeup, can't handle those shifts, but it happens in all of our lives. And I think this is one of the best things we can do in practice is smooth out these tremendous highs or tremendous lows, but they're also long-term. They're not just in the immediate moments and hours. And uh, the alternative to the high or low is, is just letting the sensitive, sensitivity be. So, the, you know, in terms of not real bipolar, but the kind of natural bipolar of our minds, um, it's really it's due to that tendency to proliferate. The mind proliferates. And... Uh, we basically put on Halloween masks and scare ourselves. So we use our power of imagination thinking to create drama, like the drama of hope or the drama of fear. And the only way to counter that is to develop sensitivity. So to be willing to feel what we're feeling, to know what we're knowing, and to put all of our attention, put all of our mind, mental energy on that knowing, on that sensitivity, because that diffuses the proliferation. We can't both be um, uh, honoring and, uh, and turning towards that sensitivity and proliferating at the same time. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. And you know, one other thing I thought of, Jim, when you were speaking is, it's easy to assume that the calmness is due to endorphins or this or that, that it might be 
you know, there are a lot of people who break their ankles who aren't calm. So uh, you should just keep an open mind about why you were calm when you broke your ankle. Or it, it's, may, it's like we always, we're, we basically are um, trapped a little bit by our scientific culture where, where that sort of teaches us that there's this biology, which we call our body, and that biology creates the mind. And so the mind is simply derived from the biology. That that's just a story, and it's useful. You know, it's a useful story. It helps us do some medicine and other things. But it's it could just as easily go the other way. You know, it's the mind creates the bi- the biology, and that's more the Eastern view of things. That the mind is the forerunner and the world follows from the mind, the external world, including the body. Could you say a little bit more about that? This meditation for me was powerful as well, and it was the place of the, the main thing about it. I've gone through numerous tragedies in my life. The last one was a very sudden death of that uh, affected family member. And it was a spot where you know, it was there almost momentarily turned out, but it was amazing to me about the back out of the clarity that I had through the situation. There was a liberation of the mind. Mm-hmm. What made me think of that was that with this meditation, the focus on the heart, was how I store those things in my body, how my mind may be mind and calm, and there's mm-hmm. a problem here, but how you know, I may be able to find that in my body. This meditation, I just, you know, some things came out of the heart. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Well, one of the nice things about using the heart is that um, it's easy for the mind to pretend it's okay, like that story that Wynn and I told. <laughs> Especially Wynn's part. <laughs> it's easy to pretend it's okay, um, but the way we actually know we're okay, really know that the calmness is not like on the surface, but it's really trustworthy, is with the sensitivity. Without the sensitivity, the engagement, the presence, then the the kind of calmness can be just a, a way of protecting ourselves or controlling the situation. So in practice then what we want the calmness is good but we want the calmness to be right in the middle of things as they are then we know we can trust it so equanimity is only true equanimity when there's the sensitivity otherwise it's like stinky <laughs> you know you know we all have met people we we've met ourselves at, at times like this too where we think we should be equanimous but we're not really equanimous so I find, in, in general, in, in Buddhist practice, that people find that learning to recognize the heart, that, that itself is a step. I mean, there's this physical center, which is a, can be useful for a lot of people, but that's, that's a pretty simplistic definition of heart, this physical center. But when we say heart, we're really talking about when we suffer, where is the location of that suffering? Or when there's no suffering in our lives, where is the location of that absence of suffering? 
So that's really what we mean by the heart. It's really, we're talking about the mind, actually. But the mind and the body mirror each other. So, at least in, in my case, there's a real relationship between this physical center and that, that aspect of the mind that experiences suffering, the agitation that the mind experiences, or the fear, or the holding, or the leaning forward, all the different subtle and not so subtle ways of suffering. And, and just to kind of, this is the ultimate meditation object, to be mindful, to be present with the heart, and to just know moment by moment the presence or absence of suffering in all of its subtleties and kind of obvious ways that it suffers, or is that suffering is absent. And then noticing the qualities of freedom, of space, Thanks, Mark. Other thoughts come to mind? Reflections about how you've worked with challenging situations, and especially in terms of closeness or sensitivity and equanimity? we don't have to wait till we lose our dad because because of the power of imagination we can use that I mean we can like even in the practice we did tonight it's very it's relatively easy for us human beings if we just do this the thing is we don't do this is this quality of empathy I mean we know there are people probably I'm assuming who have lost their loved ones tonight I mean there's got to be some deaths given what happened and uh, or for sure, most of us know people who have lost people. And we, with just the power of imagination, we can really cultivate a sensitivity to the human condition. This is really what we share. We actually have that capacity. But I think you're right. Most of us don't cultivate that capacity to be sensitive to loss, to be sensitive to uncertainty, to vulnerability that exist in our lives. So even if we haven't had the particular circumstances of some great loss, um, we can we can learn a lot what we need to, what people who have gone through it learn, I think.
Any other thoughts come to mind? It's really the essence of practice, you know, and we're talking about it in, in more dramatic terms when something difficult has happened to us, but it really is the, the essence of practice to learn how to be present or sensitive and free of attachment. And we can just, you know, think of both relatively easy places to practice, but also open our mind to the difficult places, like if you're a parent, to relate to the having children or other responsibilities where there very clearly are attachments. And then just to keep an open mind about whether there has to be attachment. Like, is it, would it be possible to be free of attachment? I'm working on that with common ground. And, I'm, and the other place, even probably more potent for me, is attachment to people respecting or liking me, which I'm realizing has been it's a real source of tension in my life and suffering. I mean, not necessarily in dramatic ways, but in a kind of a slow burn way that distorts my mind. And, and kind of sets in motion a lot of other tension just because of fear of not being liked or not being respected. So the, the sensitivity will really show us where we can do this work, which is reflecting on the presence or absence of attachment. The way of saying reflecting on the presence or absence of stress or suffering. Because attachment really is the same as suffering. Any kind of clinging, any kind of resistance. I mean, attachment is resistance. In that previous chapter, chapter 16, Ajahn Tomato talks about um, parents, you know, who love their children and that are attached, you know, and want their kids to get good grades or to be the best in, you know, basketball or whatever parents might be into. And how the attachment gets in the way of love so that there isn't love there, ultimately. We, we may think we love our kids or we may think we love our partners, but actually we really uh, want this to happen. And if that doesn't happen, we're, we're disappointed or we're going to try to fix them. And it's not really fair, it's not really appropriate to call it love. So love is the sensitivity, the empathy, the connection without the attachment, without the agenda. I mean, we all know the difference between giving somebody advice with an agenda and giving someone advice kind of in a free, kind of freely responding to the particular situation where it's being invited and uh, how useful the second is and how unproductive the first is, you know, where we're giving advice because of our own fear. This next chapter, um, if you're following along in the book, is about educating Education for Life, it's called. But it's really about, it's talking about like how we give back to the world 
And what we can really offer the world is our own example. And if the essence of practice is this non-attachment, like being willing to be a human being, willing to have relationships, willing to be connected and sensitive without attachment, this is the ultimate gift. And instead of our tendency, which is we know what's right, and so we want to teach other people what's right. Sometimes parents call me and they they have a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old and they really think meditation would be good for them. <laughs> you can probably see where this is going. And I always ask, do you practice? Are you interested in practice? You know? And and because they, they want to know, well, can I send my son or can I send my daughter? And uh, I usually say something like, well, it would be really nice for you to come for a while first. See? And then for you to talk to your son or daughter about what you're getting from the practice. Let them see what how it's affecting you. And then see if they're interested. See if they're naturally interested in it. And then if they're interested, they're more than welcome to come. And so this is like, uh, you know, we, ha- we all have this tendency to want, we see something and intellectually we get that it's useful. But we're not so interested necessarily in, in integrating it and making it part of our life. But somehow we're interested in letting other people know about it. <laughs> There's so much hypocrisy in that way. I mean, it's if it wasn't so, if it didn't have serious implications, if we could just observe the whole political, especially the presidential political scene, just from a little bit of distance. I mean it would make an amazing reality TV show. I mean, I think it would be the, it is the biggest hit, probably. The thing is, we tend to get tight about it because we understand that, you know, it affects a lot of human beings, maybe all human beings. So there's a lot of hypocrisy, and we can do our little bit to, um, in terms of saving the world, in in terms of just dealing, uh, taking care of our friends and our partners. We can try to lead by example. And uh, by being, by cultivating a greater and greater sensitivity, like being willing to go where we don't want to go or feel what we don't want to feel. And, and the only guide we have for that is our heart. So it's not even so much we like look into the world to see what we need to open up to. That may be helpful to some degree. But but really, we'll find out what we're closing ourselves off to by looking at our heart. Because we can't close ourselves off from something without it there being a contraction. So we'll notice. It's like I've noticed in myself that I can tell myself that I'm being really open and honest with somebody. And, and then I'll look <laughs> and I'll see that I'm quite defended or, you know, tight in some way. And that's really kind of what's being projected out, even though on the surface it looks like I'm being really skillful or good. And we have to be careful about the sensitivity 
it has to go hand in hand with equanimity because as we learn to be more sensitive and we see all of these things, they're ugly. A lot of what we see in the heart is ugly and we'll tend to react to that ugliness just like we react to the ugliness around us, which is like we try to defend ourselves or pay it, nah, not pay attention to it. I don't want to see that. So we need the equanimity, not just out there in the world, but we need the equanimity for what we see in our own heart, all the imperfections. I tell you, this is the real gift to the world. When we see people who are willing to be themselves. I remember, I, I've said this before to people, Ruth Dennison is uh, one of the senior Vipassana teachers in this country. She's got to be in her mid-80s. I'm not sure how old she is now. Does anybody know? She started Dhamma Dina, a retreat center out in the desert outside of L.A. and has taught for a long, long time at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts and many other places. She came here for a couple of years before her husband got sick and then she couldn't come anymore. Um, but the amazing thing about Ruth is that she's completely willing to be who she is. And her personality is sort of a little bit outrageous. <laughs> and some people would say that's an understatement. <laughs> but she's very, very at ease with her personality, you know, warts and all. Jack Cornfield tells this amazing story of uh, a retreat. Evidently, this is a time when her husband, I think he had Alzheimer's, he had some kind of chronic disease that old people get. I forget if it was Alzheimer's or something else. But she was the primary caretaker, and it was just hard. And she was also flying around the country doing retreats. And so she was taking care of her husband and then left to do a retreat up somewhere, I think in Portland or in that area. And uh, she was exhausted and frazzled, and she tends to be a little bit, talks a lot, and um, likes to move a lot. And, and, uh, and anyway, she, she was just, I guess, a mess at this retreat the first night. I think she was even a little late getting there. And then she started talking at the opening talk for the retreat. And, and then at some point, she started to repeat herself, like to tell stories she'd already told that night at <laughs> that talk. <laughs> and uh, I forget, I forget. I guess she kind of picked up because people were either leaving or kind of agitated and like probably freaking out a little bit. Like, you know, I signed up for this retreat. I'm with this crazy lady, <laughs> this older lady who's clearly losing her mind. And I think somebody was walking out of the room. This is the part that Jack Hornford tells. Someone was walking out of the room, and Ruth Dennison sort of realized what was going on to some degree and said, don't leave. <laughs> this is an amazing time to watch a senior Vipassana teacher kind of humiliate herself in front of a group of people. <laughs> or something like that. I, I'm paraphrasing it a little bit because um, I don't remember the exact words. But it was something like that. And to just in that moment, let allowing her pain and her confusion be a teaching tool uh, like that, really, I think, um, points out with what I felt, having practiced a little bit with Ruth, that, that just that amazing capacity. Because I know me, 
I would have wanted to fix my personality if I had Ruth's personality. <laughs> I would have whipped it into shape <laughs> and made it much more palatable. <laughs> and it probably would have been a really lousy one, but it probably wouldn't have pushed people's buttons as much. So that can be, you know, it can be an inspiration for us as we think about like what do we have to offer and that makes it really nice for those of us who have sort of ordinary existences like we live in this sort of ordinary corner of an ordinary town doing relatively ordinary things and we might think well we don't have much to offer and the the important thing about not getting caught in that belief is uh, it's really wrong we really do have something to offer. Everybody has something to offer. And it's as profound as any, what anybody can offer. We can offer our capacity as a human being to be really sensitive, to be really there in our lives, in our experience, and free in that experience. And that is a very profound thing. That, that actually rocks the world. One of the neat things about reading the discourses, even though they're a little can seem a little kind of outrageous or unbelievable. But, you know, there are certain times when the whole earth, and not just the earth, but all of the different realms of existence, you know, from the hell realms, you know, Buddhism, there are, I don't know, 30-some realms of existence. Do you remember how many there? Huh? 37. 37 realms of existence from the lower realms, hell realms, animal realms, human realms, and then many more up there, uh, different celestial deva realms. And, uh, and some events are so potent, they rock all the realms. There's kind of the equivalent of an earthquake. And, and basically, it's awakening to this possibility is one of those, you know, earth-rocking things. When a human mind is able to be completely open, sensitive, and free, non-reactive, equanimous in that openness so open to the whole catastrophe of our human existence and free at the same time and this is what we can practice and it's such a it's such a practical thing to be able to model this to be able to experience this and model this and it's such a profound thing too and the, the amazing thing is everybody's life is perfectly suited to do this training. I mean, we all have things that we're not in the habit of being sensitive to, not, being, not in the habit of being awake to. And we all have, uh, you know, this tendency to try to control or resist. And so... We've got the raw materials for this awakening. <laughs> of course, if we were already awakened, we wouldn't have anything to do. Except model our awakening, you know, model our freedom. Just live our life as an ordinary human being, free of greed and fear and attachment. And uh, that would be enough. So I'll leave it a few minutes in case some people have some thoughts you'd like to share with the group or any questions you might have what comes to mind about this path
be interested in the path? <laughs> mm-hmm. My name is Dan. Um, I've had an assignment this last week to um, write about expectations um, and how they affect how I think and what I do in life. And uh, it's opened up a lot of very deep things um, that I didn't know were there. And about you know entitlements and um, you know what I expect of myself, what I expect from others, and um, it comes down to you know not having any expectations um, at all for anything, and being able to let go of all those things and accept things as what they are, um, and, and it drifts me to a lot of things through through um, the and things like that. But, Realization is that expectations are not what kill me. It will lead to disappointments. That's unhappiness. They're just going to let me be. Yeah. I mean, and just imagine what that would look like. I mean, to be driving home tonight without any expectations that you reach home. And it, it, it would make us vividly present sensitive, just that practice of no expectations, not knowing, like living as if nothing could surprise us, anything could happen, but nothing would surprise us because we don't have any expectations. We're only surprised when we have an expectation. One of the ways you can tell your mind is in a, in a good balance in terms of meditation practice is when you're sitting and then something surprising happens, but there's no... Uh, there's very little reactivity in the mind. The mind isn't surprised by it. So if there's like a sudden noise that would be unexpected in a meditation period, but there, the mind doesn't. Or the, just the opposite happens. You know, you, you think you're you're really calm, and then someone sneezes all of a sudden, and you're like shocked. But if we were really uh, poised in the present moment, composed in the present moment, so present that there's no part of the mind constructing some idea of what should happen next, then we're not surprised by the sneeze, even if it's quite sudden and loud. It's just like a a wave of energy blows through, but there's no resistance to that energy. It's really an interesting thing to see. And we can, this is again, something very practical that we can just work with, like driving to work. And like, and, but we need to remind ourselves. So we would just say something like, you, you said, did you say Dan? Is that your name? Yeah. Like Dan said about no expectations. So we could just, like, as we get on the freeway, no expectations. And then we'll just notice, like, when people do really kind things or people do really obnoxious things and not being surprised by it, not turning either into a drama. So when someone does really something kind, we just let that wave, that sort of reverberation of their kind act kind of move through the body and of course it will be pleasant and if somebody does something really obnoxious maybe it's an unpleasant but we don't it doesn't land anywhere it doesn't get stuck anywhere we don't react to it it's just what it is good luck with the article are you going to share it is this like a personal journal journaling or something you're writing for public Any other thoughts people have? Mm-hmm. The uh, unenlightened 
would uh, instead of negativity, I mean, obviously, the you, as you explained, just pass through. Would for those of us who are still on the journey, would it be would it then be said to react to it as little as possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not to react to the reaction. So we, the impulse, because it's so strongly conditioned, might be to curse or to, you know, like they want to kind of trying to cut in, but we're not going to let them, you know, so we kind of play a little macho game with them or something like that. Um, so that might happen, but then there's always the next moment to practice non-reactivity. So it doesn't matter how many moments we've reacted. In the next moment, we just see if at that moment we can just accept, like including accepting our violent behavior or our our sort of equally obnoxious behavior. Oh, now this is happening. This is no surprise. And you can, like, there's certain techniques to this. You could tag on the phrase, of course, so whenever you see something or think something or say something, then just in the back of the mind, not out loud necessarily, you just go, of course, of course. Or you could say even something like, anything can happen anytime. How about this? And when we understand causes and conditions or karma, it's like it really makes sense. It's like this couldn't have been other. Given all the causes and conditions, this particular event couldn't be other than it was. How could it be other than it was? So, of course. Time for maybe one more thought or question. Mm-hmm. Selena? I can give a, a brief kind of verbal explanation, but it really, it's like something to keep reflecting on because it's, it's, uh, it's one of those real, as a reflection question, it's very potent. Like to use that question to illuminate our experience, to help us see your experience, could be great. So the, the, my words won't necessarily be that helpful, but it may kind of inspire you to do that reflection. But it's really an angle so it's a, it's a great question, if you didn't hear what Selena said. On the one hand, we talk about it's all causes and conditions. And on the other hand, it really seems like there's free will. And, and even in Buddhism, we talk very much about that it matters what we do. You know, we're making willful effort to have some positive effect. Yet it's all causes and conditions arising, coming and going. And it's really just a question of what we're paying attention to. So when we take like a wider view, we could call that, some people call that absolute view. I think that gets a little tricky to use that word absolute. So wider view of things. Then we're really, we are seeing that everything's coming and going and that things couldn't be other than they are. That when we have a more narrow view, which is how it is most of the time for us, then in that narrow view, 
part of those causes and conditions that are coming and going, part of that is this sense that this is me. So it's true that what I do matters. But this sense of Mark, who's going to do this or do that, that's also conditioned. But see, that knowing that is from a wider view. When I'm in that narrow view, I'm not in that wider view. I'm in this narrow view. So I'm not aware that the guy who's choosing is itself part of nature, part of that web of causality. I'm oblivious to that fact right now. So I'm partly wholly deluded, right? And I think it matters whether I end on time or go for another half an hour, you know. And uh, so then there are implications. And it, and it actually does matter. But it, who does it matter to? What matters to me? But what am I? Well, I'm just part of this web of causality. So when I have that view, then the karmic implications don't matter so much. But to the degree I'm identified with this mind stream, the karmic implications of my actions matter a lot because I'm going to be identified with the fruits of my actions. So if they're bad fruits, I'm going to feel bad. If they're good fruits, I'm going to feel good. But from a wider view, when the bad fruits come, it's just what it is. It's just stuff being known. And when good fruits come, we don't make a drama out of that either. Mm -hmm. Why don't we let it go there? And we'll just take a few seconds to let go of the words. And let's, again, just notice the heart and allow it to be the way it is. Without expectations. Recognizing that we care about this heart, we care about all beings. So we can undertake the aspiration to live, to practice. May all beings be safe and protected tonight. May those experiencing loss and confusion, be comforted. May all beings be at ease. Thanks for coming.